Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the most impressive monuments, hanging gardens and superstructures were lauded, listed and visited as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. Later, magnificent sevens have included spectacular constructions such as Machu Picchu and the Taj Mahal, or awesome natural phenomena such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the comedian Jeff Norcott. At the turn of the millennium, Jeff was an English teacher in London, trying his hand at stand-up comedy in the time he had left over from preparing lesson plans and marking homework. Since which time he has developed into a fully-fledged, full-time performer and writer with several Edinburgh shows and nationwide tours under his belt, as well as countless appearances on TV and radio programmes. He's written for newspapers and magazines and even the odd book. He may or may not miss the joys of morning assembly or listening to Class 4B reciting scenes from Shakespeare, but he now talks to late-night audiences who are more or less grown up. Now, Jeff, as many people will know, you've come to prominence despite or even because you occupy an almost unique position in the modern world of stand-up comedy as you identify as being on the right rather than the left side of politics, support of the Conservative Party, Brexit and so on. I think it was your wife, Emma, who suggested you you make that a feature of your stand-up act. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is incredible, this, this comedy game, whereby being slightly right of centre and voting in line with 52% of the country is this radical proposition that, that sort, of, yeah. sort of you become like a diversity booking. But, I mean, it's not being mealy-mouthed, but I, I suppose I'd always say that I'm a voter rather than a sort of ideologue. So... All, a lot of the political decisions I've made are like like most normal people is it, on balance I leaned a certain way, um, but it was you're right my wife who said it because I've been a club comedian for a while but I didn't feel like I was sort of tested I was quite safe as a club comic yeah. and I thought was well, there anything I could do that would be dangerous and have a bit more jeopardy and my wife said well you know you vote conservative that's a bit weird for you a lot isn't it and I was like it is weird as you all know club it's very weird well it's weird yeah. to admit it. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yes, it's. I mean, it's weird, I suppose, especially given. Well, I've mentioned you're a teacher uh, before. Mm. You're a comedian. Um, you 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 make a thing about coming from a working class background. You went to Goldsmiths College. You're a stand up yeah. comedian. All these point yeah. in direction of saying you should either be supporting the leader of the Labour Party or attacking him for not being radical enough. That's the standard <laughs> position for all those groups, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, when it comes to class, I mean, one of the things in, in writing the book that I kind of realised was that my family, I think, was meant to be middle class. If you look at the trajectory going back, we we weren't, we hadn't quite arrived there, but we were, we were on an upwardly mobile uh, curve. And then it was my parents getting divorced in the 80s that actually was the kind of, you know what comedy is like, is like a misdirection. That was yeah. like a misdirection for our family. And my mum 
elected to leave my dad with the house, which is quite a novel approach for a woman divorcing her husband. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. I'll leave you with the house and we'll go and live in a council estate in Wimbledon, which it mm. first up sounds like a paradox anyway. No one believes that there's anything other than strawberries and pims in Wimbledon and, and, and you know, really good equity in your house. Um, yeah. So, so, but that period has just happened to be the, the formative period of my life, you know, socially and politically it was between the ages of, uh, you know, kind of nine to kind of 16, 17. So, I grew up not not poor, but we flirted with poverty from time to time. You know, yeah. so so that that has been you, that formed me. But now, you know, I live in Cambridgeshire now. I've known the taste of brioche. I can't, you know, I always try to be honest about exactly where I'm at. So yeah. a lot of the, the trappings of my life now would be seen as middle class, but I feel like that boy who's still trying to run from that poverty that he felt on that yeah. council estate. Well, that doesn't make you as as unique because an awful lot of comedians come from relatively poor backgrounds. And then when they're making a bit of money, they are embarrassed about the fact that they now um, taste the wine before they have a meal in a, in a restaurant, which wasn't uh, what they did when they go. That you know that sort of thing. That's fairly sad. So, but it's the I, I suppose before we can get on to why you know why you might be right of centre or left of centre. Uh, you know, comedians don't always have to have a political position at all. I mean, Morecambe and White, what, Morecambe and Wise, were they left or right? Were uh, Frankie Howard? You know, what did they even have a, a political position that you could discern? But it is a part of a lot of people's comedy these days or, or that you want to tell um, your audience where where you are or where you stand on the big issues. I think I think that comedy, in a way, just reflects society. If you look online, if you look at people's Twitter bios, they'll often tell you, you know, libertarian, pro-Brexit, you know, free trade, agree. You know, so I, I think it's just in. I don't think comedy is really out of step with society there. But you're right. There has been a, a, an issue with comedy in the past. I think not just in terms of presuming its politics, but but also that what's called the mainstream. Uh, era that gave way to the sort of more left-wing alternative era Mo, you know so people characterize it via jim davidson or bernard manning which is often what i get accused of being mm. uh bernard manning without the jokes is, is one i've had uh, at least he had delivery you know that sort of thing you know at least jim davidson got his own tv show you know that sort of thing but i also think and you'll remember this is that a lot of the mainstream performers from the 80s were, were quite silly weren't they you know they were quite family friendly a lot of them had puppets you know i, I know a song that will get on your nerves and, yeah. and so i, I feel a bit for those guys is that just because they also wore the dicky bows they've sort of been lumped in with yeah. the bigoted uh comedy that did exist at that time but i would argue existed across left and right i mean you're not going to tell me that in a working men's club in middlesbrough in 1982 that there was or there weren't left-wing people that, that liked a, a rum joke or two so i th- I think if I my my memory stretches back a bit more than you, I think, but I think though the the issue that when alternative comedy came along really wasn't so much left or right. Actually, it was it, most comedy was done from a white middle aged male mm. point of view. So women were funny when they tried tried to drive, or mother in laws were harridans. Who are these strange people who've moved in next door to us who who've uh, who have funny uh, cooking? It was all from that point of view. Mm. So when alternative said, "Oh wait a minute, there's." You should embrace everybody, and I'm I'm not sure it was particularly um, support a particular party. Though, as it happens, Margaret Thatcher then came along, and and she became a target of a lot of comedy because she was quite well. I think even you, as a conservative, it was quite quite mm. strong in her uh, approach to things that uh, and sometimes uh, destructive. 
Yeah, I suppose no. It's a good point that, that it was about. I guess this this idea that's very prevalent now, which is not punching down or. But I suppose being cliched. The one thing I would say about the seventies is people lived a lot more limited lives, right? They didn't have the entertainment sources that we had. So the, the reason that those subjects cropped up was because that was the existence that people had. And I'm not defending mother-in-law jokes. But a lot of people at that time, because of, you know, there wasn't a lot of home ownership, a lot of couples were spending the early bit of their married life living with their mother-in-law. So it didn't mm. it didn't come from nowhere. And and I would argue, I've, I've always wanted to write the modern mother-in-law routine, which isn't just saying that, you know, they're a nightmare. But there is this person that comes into your life who has very strong ideas on, on how you should be acting. And and that yeah. is something we, we all have, to, you know, that's her daughter, right? So so it's something that everyone has to get used to is that there's someone that can say things to you that perhaps nobody else other than your own mother uh, would have been able to say. So, so I'm not like defending all of it, but I do think that we sometimes lose the context of how people's lives are organised then. Well, I don't think I want to encourage you down the line of doing mother-in-law jokes. I think you've got enough uh, <laughs> things to con- contend with. Just one more question before we get on to your uh, wonders. Do you, would you compare yourself slightly in a way, though, because you're a bit unique? There are other writers centric but yeah, not yeah. many. But but somebody like Henning Vane is a, is a mm. German comedian. He because that that sort of plays into the notion all oh, the Germans haven't got a sense of humour. So the guy comes along and he is funny and he does jokes mm. about being German. And but it, you couldn't uh, litter the world with with you know 50% of comedians aren't going to be german and he's got a, got a unique position are you just what the one allowed uh, right of center comedian who can pop up on any venue and say oh here's an alternative voice but but they don't alternative to the current um, uh, fashion but there mm. it's never going to be the case that half the comedians you say representing 52% of the people are going to be on in stand up gigs yeah, I think, you know, and this is something I've argued with the BBC myself is that, you know, my agent would kill me because she'd say I'm talking myself out of work. But it can't just be me. And it's not about, I don't think the British public are sitting there going, I want right wing comedy. I want to hear good, because you can't make jokes that, you know, are in support of a political view. That's not the point. I think the point is on any given panel show or discussion, it would be nice if, say, there was five people or seven people, you had maybe one person. You know, like me, Simon Evans does this very well. They just represented yeah. a view that was very common in Britain. I mean, the news quiz, I would say, is is a show that has accommodated that. And, you know, they have people like me, Simon, uh, Alan Cochran. And, and what it does is it makes it a more rounded discussion. It's better mm. comedically. And I think for the left-wing comics, it gives them something to push back on. So we say something that maybe is a bit more kind of populist in sentiment or, or, or something a bit more small C conservative. And so instead of them seeming like the establishment stooge, they've then got someone in the room that they can react against. You know, it, it's yeah. useful to have someone on the panel that might not think that every single thing that Meghan and Harry does is absolutely awesome because the British public as a whole generally don't think that either. Yeah. Well, I think you're talking yourself into work there, not out of work. You're, you're saying there should be more more people like you, but that would include you uh, on the panel to, to offer... I just, I just think of... on, it, on every show, it would just it would just be useful if there was someone that represented those views. And there are, like as you say, it's not just me now. There are other comics out there. But, but I think that, yeah, I don't think anyone really is saying 50-50 because simply in the talent pool, that doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll have to pray for a Labour government because then you can uh, well, react I do against wonder. The... <laughs> I do wonder because, you know, all those people that said, well, you can't have right-wing comedians on news uh, panel shows because they'll just do jokes about how much they love the government, which, A, isn't possible. <laughs> but then I thought, well, if Labour do win, are those same people going to go, well, you can't have left-wing comedians on yeah. now because all they want to do is high-five Keir Starmer? I suspect yeah. they won't. 
Well, let's let's leave politics for a bit. I suspect it'll crop up again. Let's get on with your wonders. And mm. your first wonder is, I suppose, quite a conventional one in a way. Uh, others are, are less conventional as we come to them. But uh, cricket is your first mm. wonder of the world. Now, I've I've read your um, autobiography. Where did I go right? Your your memoirs. I mean, maybe I was reading it too quickly. I don't remember you mentioning cricket very much in your autobiography. Mm. Is this a new love of yours or something that's... No, uh... no, no, it's an interesting point. I didn't mention it much. And it's odd because it came to me. So in a way, you say it's a conventional thing, but given my background and where I grew up, cricket wasn't a big part of the sort of sporting and cultural framework. Right. We barely played it at school. No one in my family was interested in it. But then there was um, there was this one summer when I was doing my GCSEs where England were playing Australia at home and I was revising. And it was just this thing that was on. And it had right. this murmur. And it was just this uh, this calmness, and well, England were getting tonked by Australia. So one of the, one of the <laughs> that doesn't that, fix it in time, does it? That's <laughs> no, no, no. You come back round to that. But what what I what I sort of thought was, I'm still enjoying this, but England are losing, and it wasn't like that with football. Football was very much all or nothing. And and I remember there was a match uh, where it was a losing cause, and um, John Embry scored a fifty, and it was great. Like England were never going to win the match, but I remember. He just scored this sparkling 50 and I felt really good about that. And like it meant something in its own right. And and football, consolation goals, no one remembers a great consolation goal. They really, you know, you could do an overhead kick blindfolded from the halfway line. No one would care. But but with cricket, you know, someone, you know, England get beat by 300 runs in Perth, but someone actually stands up and scores 100. You'll remember, I remember Ben Stokes doing that on the tour uh, in 2013. So I, I love the way, I love the richness in the punditry. I thought... There are these people that spend a lot longer in places and a lot longer in each other's company. That that I've just I feel like Test cricket is the the highest form of sport. It's mm. absolute superior to all sports. Right now, oddly enough, we don't have too many duplications of people's wonders in the ones that I've done so far. I mean, yeah. barely more than two or three. <clears throat> but as it happens, both you and Stephen Fry have gone for cricket and. Uh, neither mm. of you sounds though like you actually played it much at the time when you might have uh, no. done it. You, you're coming to it uh, later in life, so um, maybe that is the uh, the future for cricket, especially Test cricket, is for people to be introduced to it when they're you know they're thirty or something onwards, and they think, oh, I could have could, I could have been a contender if I'd only played when I was uh, fourteen. Well, I, pl- I played a bit around about the age of seventeen, but I was really bad. I was, I was a, a specialist fielder. That was the way I taught myself into a couple of teams. Was that, that I was really enthusiastic at go- basically. You can get in a cricket team if you show uh, 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 being at ease with being hit in the face by a ball. Yes, um, and because that's the weird thing about cricket is there's this gentleness, but also there's this this thing that you might get knocked out by a really hard thing <laughs> traveling about 100 miles an hour. It's a very yeah. odd tension. Um, but yeah, I remember I, to this day my highest score is is 11. Um, All right. Uh, and I recently, I played it again last summer for the first time in a long time. And I scored uh, six runs. In, I was not out. I scored six runs in 38 balls. It was awful to watch. The, yeah. even, my own t- even my own teammates were sort of appealing against me when, when the ball went past the bat. <laughs> just to, but, but I would say that I anchored the innings. I let you, sound more like, you sound more like Jeff Boycott than, uh, than Jeff Norcott. Well, we're only two letters out, aren't we, yeah. from the name? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, change the B and the Y. Uh, for N and an R. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll have to organise a game. Uh, you can captain one side and Stephen Fry can captain the other. I don't know what you'd call it. The 
the R- R- Ramona's v the uh, uh, <laughs> the gammons sw- sw- the swivel-eyed gammons yeah what a swivel-eyed <laughs> hello he's going to go around the wicket now I I'd be inclined to stay over and uh, bounce a couple round about uh, the same spot that one went and what we do know is um, there are a lot of cracks out there I went out and had a look at the pitch this morning. I can assure you that uh, I wouldn't be at all happy to be batting on it. And uh, now the Australians have the job. All right, so so cricket, um, as I say, a conventional and sort of one that you might expect, but your next wonder is salt. Uh, now, yeah. I don't know, I have no idea why this should be on a, a list of wonders, but it's obviously important stuff. But anyway, explain to me why you like salt. I just really like the taste of it. And I, I sort of realised that in a lot of foods, it's what I'm craving. All my favourite things are fairly salty. So peanuts, uh, anchovies, soy sauce. It, it's just, look, if it was socially acceptable, I think that I might just eat it raw and, you know, drink soy sauce. I've actually... This is pretty disgusting to admit, but um, I've actually nibbled an OXO cube in my time, just in, just right. independent, which just because it's quite a salty, stocky flavour, and and I don't know if my body has an excessive need for salt. I'm sure I'm sure it doesn't do me any good, but it, it I just I it's evolved as well. You know, you have got Himalayan rock salt. You've got all these these things now, and and even now I'm salivating just thinking of salt. So I think what I've done essentially is I've stripped back food. To, to the constituent thing I like about it. And, and you know, I, I love a KFC, and I suspect that's not all to do with the 11 herbs and spices, or maybe one of the 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> so the, spi- the spice you want, if it's right to call it a spice, is salt. Well, I think that's quite true of an awful lot of prepared foods and mm. uh, fast foods. There's, I, If it's not got sugar in it, it's got salt. And if it's not salt, it's got fat. Those are the... Those are the things. They're not yeah. necessarily brilliant for your long-term health prospects. I think salt, I think, is sometimes identified one of the worst things. So I'm beginning to but worry without about it. it. We'll also, without it, we'll also die, though. So it's something your body needs on, on a fundamental level is, you know, when, when you've been run a marathon, one of the things you have to replace uh, is the salt. Maybe not the salt that I like or, or in the way that I would do it. My, my dad as well. I mean, he was a lot worse than me. He used to have this, because he, he had one arm, my dad, and he used to have this electronic salt grinder. And me and my wife used to laugh at how long you would hear that noise as it, as it was poised over his fry-up. And he would actually, yes. he'd actually put salt on bacon and, and ketchup on tomatoes, which yes. I thought was an incredible sort of one in the eye for any sort of sense of, of nutritional balance. And um, and my son, I've seen it in my son too. Like, you know, I mean, given that my life's changed now, obviously he's tried an olive a lot earlier in, in life than I did. But mm. he's, he smashed through about 10. And I thought, I know why you're doing this. You're, you're like me. You have to disease. <laughs> well, it, uh, it may be a disease, but do you, um, do you, ha- do you have you um, developed particular taste for different sorts? It's just that salty overall saltiness you're, you're not look by are you buying special uh sea salt from the i'll have that when i'm out having dinner and stuff in the house i'm you know i'm a saxon man uh and that that's that's fine we have we have salt grinders sometimes i mean it's interesting i, mean, I know this is slightly off topic but uh, pepper evolved throughout my life it was when it, in the 80s it was that 
that sort of white milled stuff that didn't really taste of anything. We also yeah. had Mellow Birds coffee at the time, which was almost like a, a reminder of coffee. Yes. And then pepper become cl- cracked black pepper and stuff. I've actually gone back to not the white milled pepper, but there was one in between, which was <laughs> like a little bit strong. I actually think it's better. I think that the cracked black pepper, you just get little bits of pepper dotted around. I want like a, a good sprinkling across all, all my food. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm a sort of back to basics man at home when it comes to salt and pepper but i'm willing to you know if you go in a restaurant and they give you one of these pestle and mortar things you might see me dabbing it secretively <laughs> well in restaurants especially italian restaurants, they bring that huge <clears throat> those huge pepper grinders around that look as mm. though they've got some symbolic function as they uh the waiters <laughs> flirt but uh, but apparently it's just to stop you nicking them you know they're too they're too big oh, really? just, they're, they're too big to steal uh but uh, the smell of freshly ground pepper is one of my favorite things so i don't i, I wouldn't want to go back to the as you say those ghastly little containers of white pepper that's stayed around for weeks years maybe having lost its savor um you know long ago so my parents growing up and my stepdad was like this as well was that they just didn't seem to like a lot of what food was supposed to be so the coffee we had didn't taste of coffee um you know the pepper didn't taste of pepper um they used to cook the crap out of all the vegetables so there was no semblance of of taste you know I, I don't know what it was was whether it was a legacy of rationing where foods went back to a very basic point and so there's that you know as an adult when you get in your 20s and you suddenly realize you have your first crunchy broccoli yeah. you question everything <laughs> you question i mean we, we, we were living off a budget and then the one thing that we were eating that was nutritious we were sort of cooking the hell out of it and then throwing away the water it was, it's very very hard there are some stuff things from my childhood that i don't understand and there's some that i do like one is how we cook vegetables and the other is the you know like playgrounds now routinely have like rubber and wood and stuff to mm. stop you breaking bones they didn't when i was a kid it was just concrete and it's not like the technology didn't exist to make, do you remember how many broken bones there were for people falling off slides and roundabouts yes. and stuff? It, well, when I was young, there was a thing in our local park which we called, I don't know if it was a standard name, called the American Swing, which was a great long swing uh, that maybe six of you could be on. And you swung it, you know, the, the, the bigger kids on it would swing it more and more. And your aim was to try and get somebody's head near a sort of metal bit that held it up at the top. Yeah. And I don't remember it ever happening that somebody hit their head, but we were always trying to do it. And if you fell off mm. that, you were certainly in uh, trouble. To introduce Walker's new, tastier salt and vinegar flavour, they're calling them salt and vinegar. Now, your third uh, wonder of the world is Star Wars. Mm. I hope I've got that down correctly. I hope, I hope it's not Star Trek, because I know there are two Ooh. different things, Star Wars and Star Trek, and never the twain will meet. But, but uh, So when, where, how old were you when Star Wars came out or when you first saw a Star Wars movie? So the first film came out when I was about one. I have a vague memory of being in a cinema to watch Empire Strikes Back, but very young. I don't really, I remember that I went, but I don't remember any details about it. The first time I really remember watching it was on a VHS uh, around a family friend's house. And just, just you know when the, the, the words appear on the screen and there's that, that sort of trumpety fanfare beginning? Yeah. I just thought, this is going to be awesome. Like, I just knew straight away. It was something about the font of the words and, and the music. And it's interesting because when I've, in, and I've indoctrinated my son quite heavily with Star Wars, and it has 
made me realise how fascists do it. Like, it's so easy when they're young to just yeah. get ideas in their heads. I mean, I haven't sort of done it to the point of like, you know what, some maybe the empire had a point. It's not not on that level. Mm. But, but when he saw that first kind of bit of branding and that noise, this look on his face, like he knew it was going to be great. And, and I, and, you know, I just developed this, this relationship with it. And, and, you know, if you want to psychoanalyze it, my dad, you know, was, was an emotionally sometimes unavailable man uh, with a, with a metal arm, you know, a, a fake mm. arm. Um, yeah. So, you know, I did, and I always used to get this incredible emotional rush when Darth Vader, right at the end of Return of the Jedi, eventually comes down on the side of his son. And I never knew, really knew why it was. Turns out yeah. a little bit of counselling, Clive. It, <laughs> <laughs> it turns out I'm Luke. Uh, the Emperor is, you know, his emotional unavailability. It's all metaphors, mate. Oh, I see. I see. That's how people relate to it. <laughs> no, well, it's how I did. I mean, yeah. it's cool seeing lasers yeah. and, and big spaceships too. Well, uh, but it's interesting, though, that you came to it because when it first came out, there was a lot of hype around it and the mm. and people got really involved. But you came to it later, so it was a an a, a existing thing. It's like coming to a classic book. This is a classic film or series yeah. of films. Do, uh, do you follow it? Uh, are you as enthusiastic about all the Star Wars films? Because they vary in quality, don't they? Well, so the prequels came out, and I must admit, I was a bit su- surprised at Phantom Menace, like a lot of people. I think we'd all presume that it would be a continuation of all the things that we liked seeing. Stormtroopers. Mm. Logically, it, it could have been. So I think it took a long time for people to get their head around that. And as someone who writes now, I do actually respect that George Lucas took a creative risk. It would have been very easy to phone in some more of the same. But he did a bit more world building. And, and the, the prequels, actually, and this is where you might get letters, Clive, is the prequels, I think, stand up pretty well, actually. You know, there's an right. odd dreamlike quality. There's some absolute guff in them, but the stuff that's good... Uh, is really good. And then the, the point where I really got back into it recently was The Last Jedi came out. So this was the second film in the in the sequel trilogy, if everyone's keeping up. And um, and, and I, I didn't, didn't know what I thought about it. I thought there was good stuff. And, and then I found this podcast called Rebel Forces Radio, which is two guys roughly my age that speak about Star Wars for about two hours a week. And, 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 and they just explore all corners of the Star Wars galaxy in microscopic detail. And then since then, obviously, Disney Plus has launched and we have now a Star Wars TV show. So weirdly, in later life, I've got the Star Wars, the volume of Star Wars I've wanted to have as a kind of 10-year-old, really. Right. So you are quite an obsessive then. It's not just a um, a favourite film or two. You're you're in the, uni- uh, well, it's not the Marvel Universe, obviously, but it's a, it, it's a prequel to the Marvel Universe. People have these obsessions about uh, yeah. those movies now. Have you moved on to those at all? Or, or I, you... I thought they were fantastic. I thought it was a real cinematic achievement. I mean, it's a ridiculous number of films leading up to I mean, it, it sort of yeah. dwarfed anything before it, but it, it wasn't like that nip that got you when you were young. You know, it wasn't like yeah. that radioactive spider that went, got you when you were a kid. And I mean, you're right, I am obsessive. When I went on Celebrity Mastermind, which which I would say that, that I won my episode, but I would also add it, I think it was with a record low score. The quality threshold was not high that night. But it doesn't um, matter. You, you have to win the people in front of you, the team in front of you. So as long as you win, you won. A, a win's a win. And, um, but, yeah. but that was my subject. Was My special subject was the Star Wars prequels. And, and I did it just slightly, because obviously I'm a bit of a contrarian. I just knew it would wind up the nerds. I just knew that they'd be so cross that I hadn't chosen the, the original trilogy. Uh, but um, but I, didn't, I didn't do as well on it. I took a bold shout. I, did, I didn't do as well. I did, 
I got five points, which wasn't great on your specialist subjects, but then I surprised everybody by getting eight points on general knowledge. Oh, and right. and um, but it, I don't know if people remember, but it's the episode where there was a clip that went viral, where there was a, a, a young woman from Emmerdale, where they asked her the name, the first name of the famous teenage environmental campa- campaigner, which we all know is Greta Thunberg. Yeah. She said Sharon. I don't know if you remember yeah. this clip. She said Sharon. I, I do, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but I, I was I'm on that. S- that, was the, that was the standard that night, Clive. Yeah. Well, lucky, lucky that took the heat off you, I suppose. But yeah. I'm, some, I'm sometimes slightly um, sympathetic to, to people on, on quiz shows who say something ridiculous because something you don't know the answer you just the thing is to say the first thing that comes into your head yeah. to, to move on or you think it's right and and if you're all buttoned up as uh i would think i probably would be you, mm. you say oh i won't say that then because we might be said oh no it turned out it was right i just should have just said it and get it so i'm sure she just uh sharon came into her mind and it's um, in her mind it's a bit like uh, greta so it's uh well she uh, i mean and, it went to the point where greta thunberg actually changed her twitter profile to sharon yeah. for a few days so this got pretty big and you're absolutely right you know the production and you know the dark arts of television you know what they're yeah. like they're not idiots so they say to you beforehand don't say pass if you don't know because they want those moments right so yeah, they of were, course. Yeah. they and i'd i'd moments before i've been asked about the name of andrew lloyd webber's brother or something i just said dave flippantly you know and i wonder yeah. i do wonder if i actually teed her up and she thought oh well, i'll do something similar like that yeah, but um, laugh. yeah yeah the poor woman you yeah. know seven million views later it didn't seem like such a great shout so star wars uh, do you rate that alongside i don't know great works of literature dickens or something you know where a whole world is kind of captured in a lot of content or or or, or plays or is it a it's just a thing of the modern world. I think, yeah, there's that, there is a popular element to it. I mean, the story is quite basic, isn't it? They always called it a space opera, and I never never fully... You know one of those cool phrases that people get into using yeah. that you wonder if they know what it means, like calling the Tory party a psychodrama. I'm never sure if people know what they mean when they say that. <laughs> but I, I guess, you know, the kid from a, a small-town place that goes, you know, goes on his hero's journey, I don't think the narratives in it are massively complicated, I think that the fall of Anakin Skywalker to become Darth Vader was was a genuinely interesting story, mm. you know, that was pursued with various levels of, of, of skill. I think it's something else. I think it's, you know, it was a blockbuster for the reason that it was aesthetically pleasing. It was just cool yeah. to look at. It's a very simple, gratifying thing. I mean, the first scene of any Star Wars film is, is one ship going by, and you think, well, that's a cool spaceship, mm. and then a massive ship goes by, <laughs> much bigger, and it's shooting lasers at it. And I've yeah. never, you know, I do, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably well educated, but I've also got quite a basic side to me, which I'm not afraid of. And I like the popcorn films and, you know, things that just yeah. just appeal to me, you know, robots fighting. It's, it's cool. Yeah. So it's got a little bit of the Wild West about it as well, as where people mm. fighting in, a, in an anarchic world, plus it almost uh, biblical in, you know, good versus evil. So it's got a lot of things uh, going on for it. But as you say, you might have just liked it for the for the lightsabers and uh, the lightsabers. I mean, there, there is an allegory in there about uh, the Second World War, the way that, I mean, I'm now, I'll go full nerd, but the way that the Emperor rises to power, is, it, there's, there's a lot of kind of uh, analogies there. One thing I, I do think that has always annoyed me, even as a kid, was the way that, that all the most evil people were English. I also was a bit annoying. You know, like we like we were the only ones that ever had an empire. And yeah, we'd kill them. And and, and so in, in the recent um, TV shows, there, there was a character who was English and not evil. And I thought, mm. it's good that somebody's finally speaking up for the English community.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Join Luke Moore and me, Pete Donaldson, for an unplanned half hour where we discuss life's great mysteries like Can a Man Survive by Eating Roadkill? as well as the week's most bizarre news stories and your ridiculous adventures like this one about an almost catastrophic shortcut. We eventually came to a large railed fence which I decided we should climb, a scale to 15 foot-ish fence. And as I was sat atop, ready to jump down, three or four police came running from a little building we hadn't noticed before shouting at me and grabbing my mate Sam. I was faced with the choice of legging it onto the other side of the fence or gallantly going back to help my friend. I returned to Sam, and the quite pissed off police and my gallantry was rewarded as they advised me that I had been climbing into the zoo and would have landed in an animal enclosure. Listen to The Look at Pete Show wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. The Luke and Pete Show is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. All right, let's go on to your fourth wonder, which is, again, I'm, I'm not sure everybody would leap on this. Of all the musicians in the world, you too, mm. you've, uh, you've gone for. Why you too? Because, well, I mean, I just... I remember my mate Mick when I was about 13 or 14, Actung Baby had come out and he just sort of gave me the cassette and said, listen to this. And I thought, I remember being on the bus listening to it and thought I possessed this great secret. Like no one else knows that there's music like this, as good as this. It sounded just from the future. You know, a lot of things that I like, I think, just I feel like they're from some this liminal thing that I can't really put a finger on what it is, but it was both... Of, of the past, of its time, and of the future. And, and that album has stood up uh, very well. But w- what had happened then was that YouTube got massive, particularly in the late 80s. And then, you know, it, everyone liked YouTube. And then it became really cool to say that you hated YouTube. Mm. I remember on The Word and stuff like that. And I, even then, I thought this is a bit cliched. And then and then it got to a point where everyone hated YouTube, but still seemed to think that was somehow the marginal viewpoint and they should be applauded or congratulated for being daring enough to sort of agree with yeah. seemingly 90% of the population. And and, and like a lot of things that, I, that I've sort of defended, you know, cricket as well, is, is this thing that does have a mass audience, but a lot of people hate. <laughs> Maybe yeah, like the Tory was, party. <clears throat> well, yeah, I suppose that, you know, we'll get back to the Tory party eventually, but I suppose there's, there are bands that are like that and and performers that people... Or everybody you ever talk to seem to dislike. I mean, Genesis is a bit like that. It, yeah, Genesis yeah. sells millions of records, but nobody ever, not very few people stand up and say, you know, Joe, I like Genesis. I've, Phil Collins, he's, he's great. It's, he's just, it's mm. not said. And I suppose with uh, with Bono in particular, because he's a bit of a campaigner, 
Um, mm. Again, it's a bit like Sting. You know, if you if you're a rock star, if you take cocaine, sleep with a lot of women, that's kind of what what yeah. we expect you to do. But if you say, "Oh, we're losing the rainforest," or poverty <laughs> in the world needs, it's yeah. not. Uh, it's oh, don't tell it. And, and they all berate. And of course, they did the. Um, YouTube did that thing of giving away an album, and uh, people resented being given some of their music on a, on their Apple devices. Uh, do you think? Can I just do a bit of very necessary revisionism on that? What people yeah. said was that YouTube basically put an album on their Apple device. It wasn't true. Okay, if you uh-huh. looked on your phone, what there was was an option to download. It was a token. You were given okay. a token, and what it, what it was one of those first big social media huge reaction things where really you got the sense very quickly it wasn't about you two or the songs it was people basically wanted to tell you how cool they were and that their musical taste i mean people acted like their ipod was this this holy repository of everything good in music what's this what's this crap doing on my ipod i'm going all right let's see everything else that's on your ipod and we'll be the judge <laughs> we'll be the judges of, of, yeah. of your musical musical taste and and i thought that the sad thing about that album uh, songs of uh, innocence yeah. It was the late career classic that I think you two have been promising for some time. It's got some really great, really great songs on it up there with some of their best work, and 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 it was forever, it was forever kind of tainted. Yes, there was a touch of hubris about it, but you know, no one said the same when Beyonce did that. It was just no. that you two were seen as a bit naff. Yes, and and can you put your? Can you be more precise of putting your finger what makes them a bit naff uh, in the view of? music lovers or music uh, commentators well i think that they what they're able to do i think i mean you mentioned dickens earlier in relation to star wars i think dickens is a good coder for you too in that it's um, something that has mass appeal but is credible i think that they had they ha- they managed to bridge that line of stuff that can blare out to eighty thousand people in the stadium but still be good music and i think that people sometimes mistake the the fact that a lot of people like it uh, uh, for the fact that it's not credible, and then the other one is that Bono's a bit annoying, and I think he would say that he's he's a bit annoying. But I, I think that some of his lyrics. I mean, I was listening to a song the other day, uh, "The Fly," and there's a line oh, yeah. in there where he says, uh, "Every artist is a cannibal, every poet is a thief. I'd kill for inspiration. Let them sing about their grief." Now, if I told you that that was Tennyson, you know, if I told you that that was Ginsberg, people would yeah. credit that. But I, I think, yeah. like lyrically, he, at his best, he's up there with the greatest. Um, songwriters of all time I can just feel Beatles fans go what what uh, but but the Zoo TV tour was the best rock and roll this is something I will absolutely say the Zoo TV tour was the best yeah. rock and roll tour ever and it will never be eclipsed ever alright so you're, you're you're quite strong on this this is not <laughs> evangelical would be I mean I'm like Bono about Bono yeah. ironically <laughs> because <laughs> they get a bit of flack even in Ireland they, they're sort of yeah. criticised there and that's you know campaigning on behalf of you know against poverty but uh, then the, the people turn over their tax arrangements and say mm. well you could give you know that's accused of hypocrisy as, as all yeah. rich people are inevitably accused of hypocrisy as they fly around the world preaching about this or that it, mm. it's very difficult to be both rich and credible as an arguer in favor of social reform because you're <laughs> such a beneficiary from it so if you're a rock star you, you're bono or a member of you too is what you would be. You uh, I would. I would. I mean, the, the, the edge is just you know the, the sound. The, I know that it's a very treated guitar sound, but when it when he yeah. plays some of those riffs, it just makes me think of of something that I can't explain and and he you know he's a really he's so talented he could play there's one song they do uh new year's day where he plays guitar 
and piano and, and sings. And I think that sadly there'll be one of those bands that that it'll only be when they split up that people go, oh, actually, they're actually quite yeah. quite good, weren't they? <laughs> we could. We press the button. It'll take a little longer to get all the way across the internet, but it can start in five seconds. So you two, let me just get this straight. You two's new album, Songs of Innocence, is going out for free to a half a billion people in the next five seconds. Five, four, four three, three, two, two one. one. Wow, that's instant gratification. Okay, well, yeah, I, I think there's an element of you. You like to be a bit going against the, the tide, so, but you're going with you two. Um, but uh, your next wonder is um, sounds like an extremely pleasant selection. You've gone for your wife and your son. Mm. So uh, I, I, it seems an odd question, but tell me why you've gone for your wife and son. It sounds like you have a happy marriage. Uh, yeah, I, I got married um, in my mid-20s, which at the time, you know, I thought was what people did, the, the background I came mm. from. It turns out years later, like, that was not the average age for getting married. You know, my wedding happened, and it's normally like you're going to be going to weddings for the next five years. Didn't go to any, really. Yeah. Uh, um, but but I'm glad I did. And we, we had, um, we had you know, a, a long period before we actually even started trying for kids. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's such a, a strong relationship it's very odd the way they happened my wife is my mum you know I was single for a while my mum who who a lot of people called her the white witch you know she was she had she had a reputation around the way for for being uh, able to predict things and stuff and make things happen it's a very yeah. odd thing but she said to me you know what kind of woman would make you settle down and I sort of read out a list of, of sort of personal and physical attributes mm-hmm. and um and 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 then I met you know Emma shortly after that, and who was literally this is how specific it was. I, when I gave my kind of shopping list to my mum, I said, "Oh, and you know she'd probably do some charity work." And when I met Emma, you know she was doing uh, voluntary work for the Samaritans and stuff. So it was quite incredible. And yeah. and so I proposed like really quickly within six months, which I yeah. think looking back scared the hell out of my in laws. Like they they very smartly um, said, "Well, let's schedule the wedding for a year and a half's time." <laughs> I didn't realise. <laughs> at the time but it was a very smart sort of cooling off period so what period in your life was that were you uh, a trainee teacher a teacher uh, an aspiring comedian already established comedian where were you in your life i was i was still working in advertising um i was started to do comedy and then i became a trainee teacher so in the first sort of two years of me being with my wife i had three career changes which again the in-laws must did well to not pass on Mm. Um, there's any fear you know the next thing I was going to say was I'm going to be a BMXer or a professional frisbee champion Um, so Emma thought she was marrying somebody working in advertising who was going into teaching that's the man that's the sort of person she thought and she's found that she's married to an ex-teacher an ex-person in advertising who is a pretty well-known comedian you know in the public eye a little bit controversial here and there but certainly well known so has she coped with that well it's interesting she's not fussed about comedy at all which i think is a good thing uh, she has a certain cynicism about it which is healthy i was doing a comedy a long time before i did anything on telly at all so for mm. her the you know the, the small bits of recognition that i do get when we're out it's been odd because she just had a long time to get used to it not being like that you know and I, yeah. I did quite a lot of writing for tv shows from about 2009 to 2015 so you know i had, I had 
had a bit of a proximity to the glitz and the glamour, but not nothing too direct. So that she has said that that has been, you know, that has been strange for her. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, it's the opposite with my son, who my son was born just as things were were starting to happen. So he's got this kind of inbuilt sort of belief in himself as a performer because he just thinks that all the things that I do are pretty standard you know I mean They're normal yeah 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 and I'm not look I'm not there's a lot of people will be listening to this, to this now that didn't know who I was before I'm not a household name by any stretch of the imagination but I just have a bit of um, um, recognition and he he did his little talk at school uh, about you know they did what does your mummy or daddy do and he, he spoke to him about my job and he actually plugged the book at the end which is yeah. always yeah, that's it that's my you've boy. taught him well yes very much so yeah you all need to get your mummies and daddies to buy yeah. my daddy's book well, I, I, just while we've uh, come across it, so you get some recognition. People might say, "Oh, I saw you on mm. the the, uh, the Mash Report." The, so they might see, "Oh, I saw you on the Mash Report," but they might also say, "And I thought you were talking a load of rubbish, or you were speaking for the nation." You know, do you, do you get sort of a, almost like a pol- like a politician might get, as well as just somebody who's uh, on telly and being funny? Uh, online I do I, I used to and I used to get it a lot more I mean if you think about you know the Brexit years and under Corbyn like things were actually people won't think it but things were a lot more rancorous than they are now I know that now is always the worst time ever but so when yeah. and, and just the idea of anyone right of centre doing comedy people felt like it was it's something that shouldn't happen they should shut down so I had you know like a lot of quite violent reactions to things online uh, there was one guy once that, um, that, that sent me a sort of threat who turned out to be a lay preacher at church which was quite phenomenal uh, <laughs> um, um, but yeah in person people are pretty sound I, I don't think I've had anyone ever pop I get do you know what I do get Clive is there's a certain kind of young woman who looks a bit right on and stuff and she I see her go I know that bloke and then go uh I know that bloke and you know that noise that young women make now like ugh that the ugh noise <laughs> I can sort of see that happening uh, in, in their brain, but but I mean the thing the thing that I would say is is that and I hope there was a point with Brexit where I was maybe a bit more combative. I was never ideologically a Brexiteer, but I was very strong in the idea that we should you know enact the result of the referendum. That that perhaps it was a bit more like that. But but my my goal isn't to be an edge lord or exclude everybody. I think the much more interesting challenge is to keep a coalition in the room to keep people from both sides on side so hopefully the grown-ups can see that that's what i'm trying to do anyway we're back back to your your wife and son we're drifting back into probably we should do some more but and she's not in the world of comedy so she she no. your wife she looks on you like her being in a family life then and you you mm. enjoy going home after a i don't know where you've done a, a distant gig uh you know yeah. anyway you you're you're happy to get home again i get i always you know if i can yeah. drive home I will. You know, a lot of comics will stay over yeah. and stuff. But my, my sort of tariff is anything less than three and a half hours and I will I will drive back yeah. because there's just something about waking up in your own house. I mean, I might be – it might not be much fun for them is that I wake up yeah. kind of zapped from both the gig and the drive. But, but you know, when you wake up – and I mean, I, I mean, I had this on Sunday night because I did a gig in Cardiff and that was more than three and a half hours. So I stayed yeah. at a, a travel lodge in Swindon West. <laughs> and um, it was just sad getting there. It was sad getting up and – you, you know, you, you, your week starts in a, in a strange way. So yeah. I've never been one to stay around drinking or anything. I, I, lo- I like my home life. I also like yeah. keeping normal hours so I'm in touch with my family. So getting up, you yeah. know, with the family, doing the breakfast thing as well. So you obviously have a happy home life, though. I, I, I hope it's not inappropriate to note in passing you've, you've got your son, but you did, have, you did have another child who's stillborn. So you've, mm. you've had 
you've had sadness of the of the deepest sort in your yes. family as well. Well, I mean, the thing about stillbirth that is is complicated for people that go on to to have kids, but in a, in a good way. Is like my son is so fantastic and incredible, and amazing. like it literally just couldn't have asked for for a better kid. But there are some complications in the you feel how much am I allowed to enjoy this? You know, like mm. there's survivor's guilt on, on in, in a very complicated way that you, 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 you know, it, it comes and goes in, in waves, you know, and you realize how happy you are. And then it's almost like an elastic band that is attached to your back in a wall that goes, no, you have to be snapped back to sadness. Otherwise you didn't, otherwise you didn't care. So, so it is, you know, and I know people contact me about, you know, I did, wrote an article last year for Sands as well, which if people are interested in this or if they know anyone that's gone through it, because in terms of yeah. men speaking about this, it's a very it's a very small field, you know. So I, I shared an article which people seem to find um, useful. But that took me seven years to be able to talk about it, you know. Yeah. So it, it is a very complicated thing, obviously brutal for women, but what often happens with blokes is that... Um, is that you can get lost in the mix, but but yeah, the the, the fact that as you say, the bond between me and my wife was already so strong, and and you know that we went through it together and we and we kept talking about it, um, is that we you know it does feel like the bond is is unbreakable really. Mm. All right, uh, well that's um, that's that a, a wonderful wonder. It's way uh, your wife and son, uh, but your next wonder takes us back into the uh, rough world of politics again because it's Prime mm. Minister's questions. In yeah. that's the parliamentary procedure, which uh, a lot of people enjoy, even though they don't uh, watch much else in politics. It's the Prime mm. Minister of the day being, well, possibly torn apart, not actually, but torn apart yeah. by his or her opponents. Well, is that what you like about it, the, the brutal, bear-baiting quality? Yeah, and I think it's what everyone pretends that they don't like, and I find it a bit... Quite a bit disingenuous when people say they'll, they'll tune in for it on the day that they know that it's going to be like that. So there's a report out, or Boris has said something, and then they'll go, oh, "This is disgusting. This is despicable." You go, "You knew what it was going to be like." It's the it's the bit the, the weeks where it's respectful and constructive, boring, frankly. Yeah. And 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 there is a value to it, even when it is um, um, kind of rancorous like that. Is that you are just finding out a little bit like what your leader is like under pressure, or, the, or your potential. Uh, opposition leader is like how do they react you know like what is their moral fiber and you find out mm. interesting things about them as we have with Boris Johnson of late yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I think that you know we don't sort of reflect enough on what a unique thing is in our democracy I mean I remember when Barack Obama uh, came over and saw PMQs he was very thankful that there wasn't equivalent uh, yeah. in, in US politics and and it is there's a weird thing where when I'm watching PMQs and enjoying it there's, it activates a similar part of my brain to cricket and sport. Yeah. You know, there's, I, I love, I love, you know, like the jokes, and I love, I love uh, the interventions from the speaker, and 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 I think that I, I, I mean, I remember it used to be twice a week, and it probably did that was too much, really. But once a week, I hope that they we never get rid of that from our politics. I think it's a really healthy thing. Well, it's one of those things you think, oh, that must be in some way written into the Constitution, this happens. But mm. you're right, it was twice a week, It was, but it was a quarter of an hour twice a week. And uh, Tony Blair just said, oh, I can't be bothered to have to yeah. prepare for this twice a week. We'll have the same amount of time. We'll just do it on one day. People say, well, how can you do that? You can't just, you're the one being questioned. But it turns out he could do it. And now mm. we're all used to the fact that we, we have half an hour, often more than half an hour. And you're right. A lot of people say they don't like it. The speaker spends most of his time saying, oh, the, the, the people at home hate this when you're being shouted down. 
Uh, but you, I agree with you. Uh, there's, there's plenty of stuff goes on in Parliament, and it's all available on the Parliament channel if you want to. When people yeah. sit around and they consider things, the only things we like, or the mass audience, or something like a mass audience, as Prime mm. Minister's questions are, and when other things develop into something like a committee where it all kicks off and they start yeah, tearing yeah. chunks out of somebody else. So that, that's what we... <laughs> as a, but whether it's the best way to uh, come to decisions... Uh, whether it's the best judge of the of a prime minister or a potential prime minister, uh, who knows? I mean, um, William Hague was always brilliant as yeah. leader of the opposition, uh, but Tony Blair just developed a way of saying, "Oh yes, very good." Laughed at these jokes. Oh, very good joke. Very good point. Mm. But your guest going nowhere, mate. Which uh, it turned out to be the case. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there's a different culture of the way that we consume it now. Like Blair wasn't, you know, there weren't viral clips then, you know, and it's a weird thing mm. to say with someone as kind of a bit old fashioned as Haig that he might have actually benefited from that. But the uh, the negative to that is that you do often get politicians who stand up and you can sort of see them check the camera and, and the SNP do this a lot where they sort of try, they always say, oh, they, 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 they quote like a bit of slang from their, their part of uh, yeah. Renfrewshire that no one else will understand. <laughs> they, they're constantly playing to this, this one uh, yeah. gallery. I mean, yeah. Ian Blackford recently, yeah. you know, when, when Boris was absolutely on the ropes, I mean, it was, he somehow yeah. found a way of making it about him. He was, he was like a footballer <laughs> trying to get sent off. And I thought, this is so, so ridiculous and, and counterproductive. But, yeah. uh, but, but I guess that is, you know, a, a, a part of, of the theatre. And, and, you know, yeah. it's, there's never more exciting in a way. This is the thing about the Conservatives is there's a lot of problems there at the moment, but they often have formed the best opposition to themselves as well. Over yeah. Brexit, they organise well against themselves. And, you know, when you get things like David Davis and Theresa May, I mean, you like those. Those are memorable things. When yeah. when you get when it's blue on blue, let's be honest. Yeah. That is that's the sexiest yeah. politics gets. Well, look, we're we're recording this. At, uh, this is not a topical program in the sense. This is a this is a podcast to put out, and people may come across this in a, in a week's time, in three yeah. months' time. I don't know. But at the moment, um, Boris Johnson has gone on this strange journey from being this real mm. popular figure. So now he's completely, in uh, many people's views, completely destroyed himself with the, with the wish to have parties, office parties, which seems the, mm. the least um, attractive thing to destroy your yeah. career. So you as a Conservative supporter and presumably admired the way he won the election and how he steered the country, if, if he can be given the credit for that, through uh, Brexit. But he's now, uh, uh, you know, a liability. The, the, would you think... Are you, are you, would you think, oh, well, that was inevitable because that's the type of person he is? He, he, he comes well, out with, or, or are you disappointed? I, I don't know. What's your view? No, I'm not. I, I mean, I, so, so I, uh, in December, I said, you know, I probably wouldn't vote Conservative again while he's still in power. And in, in the run up to the 2019 election, it was, it was, you know, like people said, well, they held their nose and voted for Corbyn in 2017. There was a degree of that with me and Boris in 2019. He's, he's just not my style of politician. I quite like Theresa May. You know, I, I like somebody who looks like they're not enjoying it. I think that's probably a healthy sign. It shows well, that she looked, she looked awfully like she wasn't enjoying oh, it. Oh, I, mean, was... I mean, she was getting heckled by her own voice. I mean, I like people with a sort of sense of, of civic duty. So he was never my kind of guy. I think that given the constitutional deadlock that we were in over Brexit, I, I am grateful that he was the person that evidently, for whatever reason, could undo that. And I think that throughout the course of the pandemic, they've made, you know, got some of the big calls wrong, but got a lot of them right as well. 
But there are a lot of people in the Conservative Party that sort of think, well, it's only two and a half years ago he won this big majority. And like, yeah, but that two and a half years was a global pandemic. I'm going to say that counts for about seven years. And, and, yes. and I just think that in politics, there has to be, there has to be a sending off offence. There has to be yeah. a straight red. And I think Lions of Parliament, which I think that he's done, I think bring, bringing forward the Plan B measures as a dead cat, I think he did that. And I think that, you know, the, the comments about Starmer were, were so unedifying. Uh, I just think it's 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 time. He, he served a purpose at a point in time. I was never fully at ease with it. Yeah. But I'm, I, I want him to go. And then you get in that funny position now where I've always been... Uh, uh, you know, got stick for being too right wing. Now I get Tories giving me stick for being, oh, you were never really a Tory. And I'm like, yeah, neither is Boris, just in case you ain't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so, who, I mean, again, as I say, this may stay in existence for ages, but let's assume you're right, and there's, mm. there's plenty on your side would agree with you uh, that Boris is going to go. Who Who is going to replace him? Who should replace him? Or who do you want him to be replaced by? Well, I, th- I like Rishi Sunak. I think that he is, I mean, he's a bit fond of the branding and being young and cool and being liked. But, you know, he did a press conference recently. And on a day when Boris was absolutely on the ropes and shambolic, he was just across his brief. Like he knew yes. every question. That, I mean, this sounds awful, Clive, that this is like a, a shock to me and something that I'm particularly encouraged by. But he, he, he answered well. And he, there's a, there is a statesman-like quality to him. And I think it's good, you know, once in a while to have a young uh, Prime Minister. I think he's got good people um, around him. There is a part of me that sometimes wonders if there's, I would just enjoy saying to the Labour Party, well, look, you know, two female leaders now, a British Asian, you know, because there is that that strange irony about the Labour Party, the, the progressive, but just somehow in their long history, it's never been quite the right time to have a female leader. It's, it's never yeah. been so, so, but, but ultimately, I think he is the best uh, uh, available option. I think someone like Penny Morden, there, there are certain figures in the party that should be closer to number 10 than, than they currently are. And I, I think he'd bring them in. Yeah. Well, it's hard for these days for politicians to really break through unless you are the chance of the exchequer. Maybe if there's a lot of things going on in the home office, which, which is normally difficult. Other than that, we don't really know who the, uh, no. as, as, as outsiders, we don't really know who the people are. And they have those leadership contests now, but uh, whichever party comes through you think, well, who is this guy who I've never I've never yeah. heard of him or and, uh, and you and you end up even with somebody like Tony Blair who became prime minister having you know I don't think he'd ever been in government which is mm. an extraordinary situation we've got ourselves into uh, it's, yeah, I mean this is me just rambling but America they seem to be incapable of electing as president anybody younger than about 70 and we yeah. can't manage to come up with prime ministers who you know they've got to be just five years into it we it used to be the case you'd put 20 years in the home office the foreign yeah. office the chance and then you became prime minister and then uh, and then you retired now they have a burst and they hang around uh, well i mean it was, it was it was funny in the us election because you know a lot of people on the left in the us what you know some of the charges against trump are, you know an old white guy and then they went for somebody older and whiter which <laughs> the only person left in politics to, to satisfy those uh, two criteria, but but I think politics it does all occupy a different space in in our yeah. in our discourse now uh, than it did when people are more political and there's good and there's bad that goes with that. But the fact that you know most people now know who the Home Secretary is, maybe even more in the cabinet than that. There was a period uh, in under New Labour where. It was very apolitical. Turnouts were down. You know, people were not uh, engaged. So I like the fact that people are talking about it, but I I don't like the fact that people talk about it so much that they jostle people outside of uh, 
Parliament, mm. but it, it's yeah. hard. It seems to go hand in hand. We're just about to come to your last wonder, but before we do that, just I've con- conscious of that I've asked you an awful lot about politics and not as much mm. about uh, comedy as I, I might have done. So mm. you obviously enjoy making jokes, you enjoy making yeah. people laugh. What do you think about fellow comedians and where their, you know, where their jokes should go? And I've, obviously, I've got in mind that currently at this time mm. of recording, you've got someone like Jimmy Carr, who's. Uh, you know, a month after something's been broadcast, you will have noticed there's a joke in it. I mean, jokes don't always, always say something, but he had a, had a joke basically celebrating mass murder by Nazis. And that's mm. and that's the shock value, but I, I don't know what other value there is in there. Where, where, where would you stand on that? Would you, would well, you I don't berate know if he him, was... criticise him for that? Or I mean, I just generally, I, I, you know, the tribe that I'm part of, first and foremost, is a comic, so I'm never going to... Mm you know, do down, you know, people, we all make creative choices. I, I would, I would sort of push back on the idea that he was celebrating that. I think that for his point of view, the joke was just saying the worst thing, you know I mean? And the show yeah. is called His Dark Materials. I think that, I think that you have to accept as a comic that sometimes things do cause legitimate offence and indeed hurt. Like those are real feelings. You're not mm. in control of that. You can't tell people they can't feel like that. My big question is what happens as a result of those feelings? What do people think that should they should do with that feeling? Should that person be stopped from having work or deplatformed? Should that show be censored? That's where I come in and take uh, possibly... Um, take issue and there is context to that joke but in in a in a sense that it's on a streaming service right so you don't have to have netflix you don't have to click on jimmy carr's thing um and and the show as i say is called his dark materials he's a very different comic to me i i despite what people some people may think of me i'm very careful about targets and and how i go for things because i think that having talked about how i voted it would be all too easy for people i mean if i straight out of line they go well this is classic tory you know and in a way there's a perverse part of me that just doesn't want to make it easy for them i'm very careful in terms of the status of the jokes that i do but jimmy over a long period of time has said you know the the unsayable things and and it's just it's more the reaction to the jokes that worries me like where you've got an SNP councillor I know it's only an SNP councillor but still an elected official saying oh we should prosecute him for hate speech and his audience I don't know what she thinks is possible like like football hooligans where you have a banning order and they have to turn up at between 8 and 10 p.m. at their local yeah. nick and, and check in. Yeah. So it, it's as it's, it's most things. I do think what is odd to me is that you can't say that it wasn't a joke, right? You can get as upset as you want, but what you don't get to do is pretend that it was something completely different to a joke. Mm. Yeah. We come on to your last uh, wonder, uh, on to happier times or happy happier time of the year, because uh, mm. spring is your, your, your seventh wonder. Why... I, again, it's a slightly odd thing to say. Why? What do you like about spring? Uh, but uh, enthuse about spring. It is well. I think it's the best season, objectively, because what you have is just like Christmas Eve is better than Christmas Day, and uh, poppadoms are better than the curry. Is it's the thing before the thing that routinely disappoints, right? So spring, yeah. the days are getting longer. It's getting warmer. Flowers, but loads of loads of great stuff, right? Loads of great mm. stuff. It's all it's all on its way, and then. You know, once you get into summer, summer's great, but it's it happens all too quickly that they go, oh, the nights are getting shorter now. You go, what is what is that mean? Summer a month? It's the end of June, and and then you know, so summer can be fun. You know, British summers not always the most predictable things, and then you get the worst people in the season uh, debate, which is the autumn fanatics who are so <laughs> defensive about autumn, and they, they so it's just and and the reasons that they give 
brought them being great are so weak. Like, um, oh, it's got the the leaves are so beautiful and the sunsets and 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 you go. Summer is dying before your eyes, right? Everything's <laughs> being stripped bare. You've got these naked, kind of spiky-looking trees. And, and it's not only that. It's the long, slow walk into winter. Like once you get in winter, you go, all right, we're in now. This is this is bad. Hunker down. Let's get through it. But autumn is that, that false hope of, oh, it was 20 degrees today. And then it gets weirdly colder around 4 p.m. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so I think that spring, I, I, you know, I don't like to be too didactic, but I think it's objectively the best season. I like I like the way you've set up this this yeah. argument between these four camps, <laughs> like their political parties. Well, I've moved on from Brexit now, you know. Yeah, I know, but the or, the autumnists they are so, so hopeless. The deluded people in the summer. Yeah, you're not even allowing their the winter the winter files. The people who actually like it in the in the cold weather, you've kind of dismissed them as non-existent. But, well, you know, so, they exist. They exist. I, I think that you know, if we wanted to get culture war about this, I have noticed a Venn diagram between autumn fans and your liberal sort of metropolitan elites. They're exactly the sort of people that want opportunities to wear pashminas and and certain tones. You know, certain kind of coats. <laughs> so maybe, yeah. like most of me, it comes back to my suspicion of and fear of becoming middle class. All oh, right. So now you see you're going to hate me because in my typical BBC way, I I, I like every season of the year. And, and when, <laughs> when you get to no, but really, I mean, I genuinely do. In yeah. spring, I can see oh, spring it is lovely. Anticipating summer, oh, these long nights, a hot weather. If we're lucky, holidays are on. Oh, but I also like that sort of feeling of autumn. But I enjoy a walk in the winter or or snow on the ground. So I'm I'm as I don't, I'm beyond uh, woolly. Woolly liberal on this. I yeah. I think there's good there's good and bad in all seasons. I think I'm. That's I'm that's 2022, that. Clive. You got you got to pick a side. This is a pick a tribe. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's got you prevaricate. I mean, no. I I think yeah. that I think winter has. I mean, the thing about autumn is it's so devoid of anything good. Is they the things that do happen in autumn. There are no bank holidays, by the way. I mean, that's a problem. Mm. And they they have Guy Fawkes night. So it's, no one's really that exercised about, everyone, everyone sort of hates politics, but we celebrate, you know, a, a plot failing to blow up parliament. We've had to import yeah. Halloween from yeah. the States just to try and jazz up because people knew it was dying on his ass. So they, what can we do just to give it a little bit something? And I, I would say, on a no, serious... I disagree with you. It wasn't dying. It was a very jolly festival throwing a body of a traitor on a, a bonfire in a cheery way for the for the children. And it's been upstaged by this uh, Halloween, which is, I don't know what that relates to. I don't know. It was something we exported to America hundreds of years ago. We're happy to see the back or it's come back and bit us. I think, you know, there is one thing I like of Halloween, and this goes back to the sort of wonder of my son, is that there is a very American thing that happens here now, but it's actually good, uh, which is um, pumpkin picking, where at a certain point in the year, a lot of farms just open, and all the pumpkins are on the floor, and they have, they've yeah. made it a thing, and it's nice. And everyone everyone sort of says, I guess it's easy to be cynical about American imports. You go, well, some of it is popular because it's good. Like, yeah, okay. And, 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 trick, or, and so, trick or treating, do you enjoy kids banging on your door at seven in the evening and demanding more chocolates or they'll do what? They never actually seem to have much of a trick up their sleeve. It's just... just well, I, did, I didn't like it. And then I saw my son at the age of four dressed as a cute vampire. And I thought, ah, I get it now. It's not for them. You know, they get sweets. There's a little deal going on here. I get to see him looking cute. I mean, he's coming up six now. If I could get him to dress as Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars prequels, which he does have a passing resemblance. So, so... 
There are, yeah. Look, all right, yeah. I, I'm gonna give it all, all, all to me. It's better than it it it, it was, but it's still uh, so leaves are not a reason to love it. So I've been uh, and I've been benefited in doing this uh, podcast from uh, um, reading your uh, memoir. Where did I go right? Which uh, how the left lost me. So I suppose people can catch up on more stuff about you and your attitude to the wonders of life by uh, tracking down a copy of that. I've seen you uh, doing stand up. Uh, Two or three years ago now, but uh, you're you're still touring. Uh, have you managed to conquer COVID and get out there? And yeah, you know, I was out in the in the autumn because obviously people need things in the autumn to make them happy. Yeah. And and um, and we're back out uh, from February 2022 right up until May. And and you're like this guy. It's, it's the final date of the tour. Is you know, like a lot of comedians, their big goal is I'm going to play. And I'm going to Newcastle, Carlisle, Ipswich, Portsmouth, a lot of places. Yeah. But but a lot of people they want to play the Apollo. All the young comics have got to play the Apollo. Yeah. Not me, Wimbledon Theatre, 29th of ah. May, Wimbledon Theatre, the place that I first saw Panto. The place I yeah. saw Christopher Biggins in a skirt. That is yeah. the home of comedy. And that is my one London Christopher, day. You saw Christopher Biggins in a skirt in, <laughs> in Wimbledon. I, I'm going to be there one day. Not necessarily in a skirt or or Christopher Biggins, but in this theatre. I'll be performing there. Did, yeah, the 29th of May. It's the, it's the homecoming gig. I just I just thought, yeah. you know, like I say, I always do things a bit, a bit different. But it just it sort yeah. of appealed to me that there's something. And I, I just saw Shane Ritchie doing Panto there in December. And I thought... I might, I might incorporate some Shane Ritchieisms. You know, it, it's it's possibly the point where my mainstream sensibilities and my comic sensibilities meet. All right, look, Jeff Norcott, thank you very much for sharing your seven wonders with me. I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven. The one which struck me as particularly wonderful, as you described it in this podcast. And you make a reasonable case for all of your wonders, but I think the one where I felt uh, your emotions were most engaged, really, was when you're talking about your wife and son. So maybe I'm getting a bit soft as I'm going through these because I keep picking these uh, family ones the last few I've done. But anyway, I'm going for I don't know your wife or your son, but from the way you talk about them, uh, they <laughs> they uh, they cope very well with, with being in a family with you. And so I'm going to make your wife and son the one I select as the wonder of wonders from this podcast. So thank you very much for joining me, Jeff Moore. Thank you. My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. 